Welcome to the Westside Investors Network, WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. And now your hosts, AJ and Chris Shepard. Hi, this is Chris Shepard. Just a disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only. They should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments, or take any other actions. Thank you and enjoy the show. We've got Lance Peterson on the show with us. He is the founder and managing partner of Verivest. Lance will talk about the platform that they offer and how it is designed to bring transparent trust to the middle market investing. He also shares about the pros and the cons of investing in a single asset syndication versus fund type investing, what kind of track record you need to have and the benefits of having a good analyst on the team. So without further ado, let's welcome Lance Peterson. All right, excited today to have Lance Peterson with us. He is founding and managing partner of Veravest and also podcast host with the Real Estate Risk Report. Lance, you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah. Happy to. Yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. I, I appreciate it. So as it turns out, we're all based here in Portland, right? I think, Chris, you are too, correct? Yep. Yeah. I'm yeah. here. So, West Portland. So you got, you got three Portland guys on the show today. I suppose yours is probably more local, but my show, I talk to people. I guess you have guys, guests all over the place too, but yeah, I mean, a bit about me. So I've, you know, I, I moved out here to Portland. I'm from North Dakota originally in 99 and I got into this sort of real estate world in 2008 when I teamed up with my business partner, Matt Burke, who's been a commercial hard money lender in the Pacific Northwest for years and years and years. I didn't know anything about it. He was looking to grow and scale you know, his business. And I'm an entrepreneur, but more, I'd say, operationally bent. I'm kind of like the grow and scale it type guy, like ideas and like, how do we get this thing off the ground? And then I tend to lose interest, you know, seven years later when things are sort of all figured out. But, you know, we've been at it now since 2008. So I guess we found ways to sort of reinvent ourselves. And in 2012, we did just that. We pivoted and, you know, realized that, you know, your your ceiling and your upside's limited when you're lending exclusively. Money's fungible, right? There's people willing to, to borrow for less. And so we said, hey, you know, what are our skills? What can we bring to the table? And, you know, Matt's a great underwriter and he's got a good sense for, you know, just the capital structure and what's a good deal and those sorts of things. So we decided that we'd be better off finding, you know, great operators around the country, executing any number of strategies and raising, you know, capital from our investor base and allocating into those strategies through some, you know, discretionary investment funds. So we, we did that. That was in 20, 2012. And we also launched an advisory practice where we helped real estate entrepreneurs around the country to, you know, structure their, you know, usually they were, you know, blind pool funds, you know, open-ended, closed-ended, just depend upon their strategy and structure and, you know, who they're trying to sell the fund to. And so we've done, since that time, I think we're now over 180 engagements. So I spent a lot of my time, you know, having those conversations and trying to help, you know, craft those things. And out of that, we found that there was a need in the market for sort of back office, middle and back office administration for these investment vehicles, whether they're single asset syndications, joint ventures, funds, and sort of the accidental business then was was that, which is which we now refer to as Verivest. 
and you know we do all the bookkeeping and accounting and and all those things so so for for us you know that's kind of what i do but really the north star for you know for us is really just trying to help you know get more capital into the space to worthy you know real estate entrepreneurs right so we feel like it's a great source for passive investors you know your high net worth investor to you know get into these things so the jobs act was kind of a watershed moment back in you know 2012 and then 2013 when you know we could they lifted the prohibition from advertising and soliciting publicly so really we've been riding that wave and trying to do everything we can to just help encourage and and get more and more participants into the space and you know allocating capital so that's sort of a high level you know what what I do but more on the more on the capital side not so much on the you know operation side although we you know we make investments very active investor you know into deals around the country wow lance it sounds like you've got i mean since 2012 you've got a lot going on just to clarify so are you guys did you start i guess doing funds yourself and purchasing assets and as well kind of getting into Veravest? Yeah, I mean, we did. So, I mean, Matt launched his first fund in 2001. So it was a debt fund. And so we had a lot of experience just managing funds. That was one of the things that we felt like we brought to the table is that we, we probably, you know, many people call themselves fund managers. We just felt like we were more students of all things involved. So it was sort of a, a core competence for us. So in 2012, yeah, we, we launched... I guess we didn't launch until 2013, but it was a discretionary open-ended fund where we could basically, you know, go in and do a joint venture deal, you know, bring the capital to a multifamily, you know, deal, or it was a super broad, you know, discretion. I mean, we could do whatever we wanted to do basically within the real estate realm. So yeah, that's what we did. And that's what we, that firm is called Fairway America. So Fairway America at this point is just exclusively a private equity real estate firm. And that's Um, open-ended. So essentially that means that anyone can invest at any point and it's just, and you guys can use the funds discretionarily and, and yeah. just produce a return. As long as you're an accredited investor, right? So you meet that standard, you put money in. So when you say open-ended in the fund world, it just sort of, me- it means that you have a redemption, right? That means that I can invest in and then there's some way for me to get out of that without the underlying assets necessarily having you know, to be sold. Whereas a close-ended vehicle would be more like a real estate syndication or partnership or a, a close-ended fund where you don't have redemption right and you have to wait until the very end, until the last asset has been disposed, you know, to sort of to get out. And so for us, it's just, it was sort of a unique thing. It's more like a mutual fund structure. It's just, hey, I can go in. In fact, you know, in hindsight, way too much brain damage. It's, it's very, very complicated but that was sort of also why we ended up doing the funded admin practices that we became really, really good at administering these very, very, very complicated structures. And, you know, cause you have to, I mean, for it to be open-ended, let somebody get out, you know, you have to strike NAV or net asset value, meaning you have to, you have to figure out what the underlying, what you believe the underlying assets are worth so that when someone gets out, they're going to get out at a different unit price. The price fluctuates for a unit depending upon, you know, the value of the underlying asset. So as an example in COVID, right, you end up writing down a bunch of the asset values, which means that the price of the per share goes down. So if someone wants to get out at that point, they're going to have to go out at the lower price. It's just a lot more, you know, moving parts. I don't necessarily encourage most people to to do that, right? But for us, 
it's sort of, from the investor's perspective, it's really great because they get this diversified, this investment is sort of diversified a lot across a lots of things, but they don't have to wait, you know, to sort of take their money off the table, so to speak. Yeah, for an event, an yeah, asset yeah. liquidation event. Yeah, so it's, but it presents all sorts of complications, but nonetheless, yeah, that's what we were, you know, kind of eating our own dog food, so to speak. Like, so we had our own funds, we're advising and consulting others on structuring theirs, administering them, you know, for, for them. And so the yeah. open-ended fund was Fairway America. And that, I guess, launched, like you guys spent time in 2012 getting that set up and that was launched in 2013. Yeah. And then you guys have another company that I guess helps operators. So syndicators or fund like operators who run a fund with their back end. What, what is that company? Yeah, it's called, it's called Veravest. So yeah. And, okay. and to clarify too, with, with the fairway has, you know, multiple funds and they offer single asset syndications and there's other ways to invest, you know, into that deal flow besides just the, the funds, but okay. yeah, so there's, there's that. And then, yeah, we have, so from Veravest perspective, you know, we look at, I know outside of me, I mean, I happen to have ownership in you know, both enterprises, right. But, that the rest of the employees here don't. So they view it as just Fairway America as an example, just another, just a client of many clients. So yeah, on this side, th- what we do is that's where we, we kind of took that advisory and consulting practice, moved it over here, which is what I head up specifically. And, and so someone will come to us and say, Hey, you know, we've been syndicating deals for years now. And we're just, we feel like we're at that point where we'd like to, you know, move to a fund, you know, a blind pool fund structure, right? Because it's just, we're syndicating 12 deals a year and it's just, it's a lot of work. We'd rather just, you know, get commitments from investors, you know, capital commitments and call the capital in and, you know, have them in, you know, one pool vehicle. So I'll help them figure out how to structure that, you know, get the legal stuff done. It's basically, you know, more or less turnkey. They've got the fund and then, and then we'll turn them over to the, the other side of the, the house, right, which is going to help them board that, you know, onto our platform. So we've got a proprietary tech platform we built. It's an investor management system with all those accounting tools. So they've got a white labeled investor portal, you know, that they can send their investors to who can say, I'm in for a hundred grand, right? Fill out all their paperwork. It does all the compliance, accreditation, verification. They sign the sub docs electronically. And then our team will do all the accounting for that vehicle, right? All the bookkeeping and you know, all the stuff that most real estate guys hate, you know, our team, that's really how we look at it. Like what are all the things that they hate and don't want to do? We, we try to create services to do those things so that they can just focus on acquisitions and asset management, you know, in, 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 in fundraising at the highest level, but one, even like fundraising or investor relations, when it sort of transitions into more administrative types of things, that's where we'd like to pick up. Right. Because when you've got someone and you guys know this, when you're running a, you know, a real estate firm, it's, and you try to scale these things is that you, you need, it's like any business, I guess, but if you feel it more there is that in the real estate business, you earn, you know, some asset acquisition fee, maybe an asset management fee, right? But really most of the compensations on the back end, you know, when you have an exit, well, you can't hire employees with the back end exit that may or may not happen. So for us, we really look at it from that perspective is just, how can we shift as many of the expenses that, that you know, in, in jobs to, to be done in a business like that and, and make them more variable, right? And land them at more of the deal level, right? Because otherwise then you're like, I got to buy software. I got to hire someone to do that, right? And that costs money. 
and it sort of breaks, especially when you're trying to scale up. It doesn't, it doesn't work. There's not enough money to go around this way. You know, you can just kind of engage Verivest and have a lot of those things just be more variable costs. We do them for, you don't have to worry about, you know, prematurely hiring resources. So I would say human come, humans come in holes, right? I mean, like, like it, it's just, you got to hire them. They're going to give you 40 hours a week. You can't, it's hard to like get a fractional piece of, of people. To, it, to it work on work. that one, part of that syndication, and then fractional mm-hmm. person to work yeah. on part of that syndication, and yeah, it's, so it's so tough. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that definitely makes sense. That's no, that's a great way to break it down. And when you were talking about your advisory practice or Verivest, you said something about like 180 engagements. Like I'm, I guess I'm not quite clear. What what do you mean by engagements, or like, is, how do you measure those? So I've, we've, it's an engagement to me as someone's like, Hey man, I need to more efficiently capitalize my stuff. I think I need a fund. I want to be a fund manager, you know, engagement, right? That's one. So they say they hire me, okay. they hire us to do that. So, you know, we've, we've, and some people we've done it more than once, right? Like for fund two or fund yeah. three or whatever, but yeah. So it's just going through that exercise of trying to determine what, you know, what's your underlying strategy? What's the structure? What's the appropriate, you know, acquisition fee, asset fund management fee, you know, PREF, hurdle, you know, all that sort of stuff. Like, how can we, because to me, I look at it like every time someone asks me to do that, I know why they want it. You know, they want it because they think it'll make their lives easier or, or it's just, it's the appropriate thing to do. I look at it like, well, ultimately we're creating a net new financial product that we're going to release to the market, which has limited buyers, you know, because more often than not, it's accredited investor, at least accredited investors. So, I feel like my role is to just play that like, Hey, I'm the guy who's going to consume this thing. You got to be thoughtful and mindful of structuring and architecting in a way that someone will want to buy it because that's what a lot of, especially in this space is that they don't know what they're doing. They go to an attorney, attorney just gives them what they ask for. And then they go out to market and it turns out that no one wants to buy it. Well, that's a problem, right? Like it's hard. And that even if it's a syndication, whatever, you've got to make sure that, that there's a method to your madness when you structure these things. Yeah. To make sure that it's a yeah. competitive so, investment. Yeah. yeah. Well, competitive and then it's structured in a way that people, it's going to attract people to actually like want to get into yeah, it. Yeah. You've got right? it. Cause I mean, a lot of guys when they're getting started, they'll, you know, with FF and R, you know, fence, family, relatives, it, a lot of times the way they structure these deals is very, in my opinion, it, it ends up being very one-sided oftentimes. Like it's very, favorable to the operator. And so what happens is that they come and say, well, the way I've been doing it is I've been doing it where I'm basically giving them a six pref and then I keep 80% and give them 20% over that. You know, and then I'm like, well, I hate to break it to you. Not very marketable, (laughs) right? Like, so, you know, I hope that you've got a lot of friends and family and relatives that you could, you know, hey, kudos to you. Keep cutting that deal. That's you know, your thing. But I'm just telling you, if you've tapped out all your friends, family, and relatives, and they don't have any money left to invest, you're not going to get any love in the market. And it's it's odd, but it's just that's, I spend more of my time just sort of trying to get that through to people that, okay, I get it. I understand you want to get paid. I'm not saying that you shouldn't. It's just, you, you've got to understand that there are competitive forces, right? And that Others do what you do. And when you go out to people who don't already know, like, and trust you, there's a lot of friction. And so for me, that's where I feel like everything I do is just trying to remove that friction. 
because to me, and this is what, you know, if you follow me on LinkedIn or whatever, I call it trust is the transaction, right? So when you're, when you're trying to raise capital, the real transaction is how do I convince the counterparty to trust me? Because if I can't convince them to trust me, they're not going to wire me money, right? Like, so everything that, that stands in that way, how can I reduce or eliminate the things that, that make it hard for people to get to that place? Right. And that's where at Verivest, some of the recent services we, we, we launched, we launched a public directory, right, for because investors are trying to go and f- where can I find guys who have deals, right, and meet them. And then when I meet them, you know, what are the things that get in their way and the things you hear a lot, right, from, from investors of all shapes and sizes, like, how do I know these guys aren't crooks and criminals, right? So background checks. But if everyone and their brother ran a background check, all 50 members of your, you know, it doesn't make sense. And then having... Having, it's having them, gets expensive. It's expensive and then having them give me the background check. I mean, how do I know you didn't just forge it and delete things that weren't good, right? <laughs> and then like the track record, like everyone's, everyone's running around saying they've got a proven track record. I mean, every, if I had a nickel for everyone that told me they had a proven track record, I'd be a very wealthy man and I wouldn't be here right now. But it's not the case. When people give you stuff and say, I've, I've bought $500 million worth of real estate, I'm like, let's be, let's be real here. Like no one, they're like, well, maybe you did, maybe you didn't. I have no idea, right? Like you can make up all the crap you want. And, and unfortunately people do, right? We can't even, yeah. we don't even know if we can trust what we hear on the news or the newspaper. I mean, they're online. Like we don't trust anything anymore. I don't know if we I, ever really did, but we certainly don't like, ah, you're great. I, you I, did I that. find that some, some, some syndicators, they bought into a deal and like the deal was like a hundred million dollars, but they bought in for, you know, 1% or half a percent. And they're like, we, I'm part of a hundred million dollar deal or I've got that real estate experience. Well, they do, and, that, and I hate that stuff. And I see that, right? Like, it's just like, yeah, I've got a hundred million, I've got a hundred million dollars of assets under management. And it, it's just, it's, so to me, I understand why they do it. We all want to sort of puff ourselves up. It's a, it's a human yeah. sort of, I mean, we, we, we want to do it, but the issue is that in this business, it's, we're talking about securities. We're talking about like it, it, it's, we're in a different realm when you're doing this stuff and it's misrepresentation and you're violating securities laws. You could, you know, there's consequences. So for me, that's what I see in the industry. And I see that it's stopping people from participating because they don't know who to trust. So to me, it's like, well, how can we solve that problem? I say, well, we happen to be a third party fund administrator. Our job is to be as independent as we can be. I don't, you know, I'm not the investor and I'm not the guy who's taking the money. I'm the guy who's making sure that they're doing what they should be doing. So we're in a good position. And so we now offer sort of a track record verification service. So, you know, either an investor looks at your deal and says, well, you know, I don't have the time, the inclination, the wherewithal or skill set required to verify these claims you're making. So why don't you go to Verivest and get with their program and they'll run the background check and you can become a member and you can, they can verify your track record. You can pay them to do it once for the benefit of any investor you want to talk to. And in this case, for the benefit of me, so that you can substantiate that I should, that this stuff actually happened. And then the last piece that we do, right, is just it's post-investment is monitoring that investment to make sure that all the money is going where it's supposed to be going. Because that's, I mean, to me, that's actually probably the biggest risk that most people are pregnant with when they invest in a private placement is that they're a limited partner. They don't, they only own 1% of the deal. They, you know, and then the, the person they gave the money to is the guy who's doing the books, 
right? And they're the ones who are doing it. And they, like, I have no idea. Are you actually doing what you said you're going to do? I don't know, right? And, and for all I know is that you're basically financing your children's education and going on vacations and buying boats and stuff. I don't know. I mean, it's not that, it's not that everyone's doing that. It's just that it's the fear that maybe they are, right? And I think that that's, for me, the thing that I've honed in on is that I think that people are mainly fundamentally honest and do the right thing when no one's looking. I, I believe that. But the issue is that when you're the counterparty, you have no idea and it just stops you from making a decision to invest, you know, in, in the beginning. So. And those, those horror stories of the bad actors, I mean, hopefully they're, they're not doing deal after deal because they would need to find new investors every single time. And that's why having a track record and showing that, you know, that you've, you've done the stuff before and, and are going to continue doing performing well is probably a good thing. Another question that I kind of wanted to ask or maybe move, move the conversation towards a little bit more is, so you've, you've talked with a lot of operators and syndicators and then also then like maybe move them into funds. I'm surely you've talked with operators and syndicators that you're like, yeah, a fund is, is probably not a good thing to, to get into just yet. So, I mean, maybe kind of like, can you describe some of the pros and cons of staying in that like single asset syndication space as opposed to moving to the, the fund type space? Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, m- most people who tell me that they want to start a fund, I, I try to talk them out of it. So that's, it's sort of like, <laughs> I don't think you need to start a fund. It doesn't sound like, you know, for me, it always starts at what's your asset strategy and just, and just thinking about how that works. Like as an example is that maybe you're buying these smaller, like 60 pad mobile home parks or something like that. Like where this, the, the, the deal size is pretty small. Like that's really hard to like, and it's not cost effective maybe, right. To syndicate, paying a syndication attorney, 10 grand, 10 grand, 10 grand for these tiny assets. Right. So that's an example of something that might make sense to do in a fund. But I always start there. What's the underlying asset strategy? And then, and then from there, I look at it and say, well, I mean, to be honest, I look at it like I call it intellectual horsepower, right? Like how do you have this ability to grasp abstract concepts, right? Or like, are you there? Or are you really just like out there, just real estate guy? Because to me, there's this there's certain type of intelligence that, that you kind of have to have. Like, because some guys just get really flustered with, this abstract complexity, things they can't see or touch or whatever. And then they don't like that. I'm like, see, dude, I know that you want to, I want, you want to put fund manager on your business card, but like it comes with this whole other set of things that you have to be, that, that you might not be into. Right. So just trying to gauge, you know, their willingness and understanding that it's going to be more complex and there's going to be things that are going to frustrate you rules and regulations and things you have to deal with today. But I mean, at, at the end of the day, it really comes down to funds are harder to sell to investors, right? Because unlike, you know, a single asset syndication, I get to see the investment that's going to be made. Oh, it's that apartment building and that submarket and that whatever. Okay. I like that. I get to pick and choose the deals that I'm in. When you suddenly go to them and say, well, we've identified asset number one that looks like this, but number two, three, four, five, six, and seven, I have no idea what they'll be and when we'll find them. Right. So the investors are going, oh, man, once again, now I really got to trust you. See, because now the bar goes, it's even higher for them to figure that out. So for me, just saying it's going to be harder to go that route where you're just going to suddenly go from having to syndicate each deal, deal by deal basis to like raising a 50 or 100 million dollar equity raise to go buy whatever you want to buy. 
it's it's just more challenging. So getting getting them to understand that, but there is a, there is an intermediate step that I recommend that a lot of guys do is I say, okay, are, do you have enough deal flow where you you know you could you're going to buy at least four assets in the next twelve months? Yes, I mean I feel like our pipeline you know we there's like seven deals we could do or whatever. Then I say, okay, well that's that's good. It's hard. It's a pain in the ass to syndicate seven deals, but you're probably going to have to do that anyway. But the way that you can stair step to, to the fund model is to do like a GP co-invest fund where the, the main objective of the fund is to invest, you know, at least 10% of the equity required for the given deal, right? Because then now all of a sudden you're going to have a diversified portfolio. The people who already know, like, and trust you will probably like that. They, they have, you know, they've got diversified exposure to the deals you're going to do in the next two years. And then when you're trying to raise and grow in your investor base on a syndication basis, it's a better story to say, we've got 10%, you know, we've got 10% co-invested, right? It's just rather than what's your co-invest? None. We don't have any right now. It's like, well, I convince a bunch of other people to, to trust me to invest their money to the tune of 10%. And it's a good way to kind of make your way. And eventually your investor base grows, they get comfortable with you. You know, you can begin to, capitalize a larger percentage of those transactions and eventually get to the point where you've got a $50 million, you know, LP fund that takes down all the equity in every deal you do. So it's, the answer is, the short answer is it depends. All these variables. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So I guess let's take one of those options down the decision tree. Let's say that, you know, you've got an operator who, you know, is not doing enough deal flow. Maybe he's doing two or three, syndications a year and he's like doing probably 506Bs and then, you know, what what would you say would be kind of competitive market rate for those syndications? Yeah, well, well, one, I would say if that's your situation, then just syndicate. If that, if that situation doesn't change, just keep syndicating your deals. Like just that, that's the best way to go because it has built in scarcity. There's only so much of it, you know, it's, whatever. Now, in terms of market rate, I mean, the answer ultimately is, is it depends, but I, I think it just comes down to, it comes down to how much experience you have. I mean, because my, my advice to somebody who's sort of doesn't have that lengthy proven track record is I'm going to say, listen, give a higher pref than the rest of them, right? Meaning at this point, we see a downward sort of, things are now trending off of the magic eight to seven, right? You see more and more and more people at seven, given that we're in this like negative to zero interest rate environment. So I'd say to protect your, I mean, investors think about the downside. You think about the upside. They think about the downside. So you can differentiate yourself by giving a higher pref, right? Then, then the other guys. So go 10, who cares, right? Give them 10, demonstrate that, you know, that you don't have as much experience. And then maybe you can have a little more aggressive split above that 60, 40, 65, 35, you know, things like that. But it's just, once again, trying to take their situation and say, how is the, how is the investor community going to look at you vis-a-vis the alternatives, right? Because everyone gets obsessed with this stuff because I do think there is some magical market rate or whatever. And I'm going like, I know that that's, it makes it easier to think like that, but that's not how it really works, right? Because if you, if you obsess with the metrics or the economics on the deal is the only thing that that's how investors make decisions, you're sunk right now, right? What you really need to be more focused on is your narrative. What's your story? What makes you different? Why are, how do you, where do you look for deals? how did you get that deal? 
all these other things. It's that it, people buy people. So as much as I like and teaching people to be more analytical about it, dude, it's not lost on me that all investors are still making emotional decisions. So I'm saying get your story down and, and have them fall in love with you before they even find out what the damn terms are. But when they do find out the terms, send signals to them that says, I'm being intellectually honest with myself about my realities. If I've only acquired $20 million worth of commercial real estate and I've only been in the game for three years, then show them that you're cognizant of that by showing them that you're willing to be aggressive and prove yourself because that's what it takes, right? But if you've been in business and you've done a half a billion dollars worth of transactions, conversely, investors need to realize that the risk has been mitigated through their experience, right? If they've got a robust track record and they've, they've proven track record for real, then be, be ready that you're going to not get as much. The economics won't be as good on, a, on the exact same deal being operated by two different parties, one who's inexperienced and one who's very experienced. Because to me, it all comes down to, that's why I run the real estate risk report, is that to me, it's all about more experience just means that the risk premium, it's been de-risked through their experience. Conversely, yeah. an inexperienced guy, there's more risk due to their inexperience. You need to be compensated for that risk. Right. And so it's all the experienced guys want to tell me investors, you should only invest with experienced guys. And then I'm going, yeah, it's convenient for you. That's a great talk track. But that's that's you used to be the inexperienced guy and you were bitching all the time about how you could never get any money and all the big guys get all the money. It's like it's not that simple. I kind of had another question along those lines is like what? You know, we talked, you talked about this progression of like doing single asset and then the GP co-invest fund and then like a, a fund, like, I guess what sort of like track record or experience do you think someone needs to have to kind of move up that ladder or yeah. like kind of like, what's your experience with that? Yeah. I think that that's sort of the, that delicate balance. I mean, so the advice that I give most guys, cause there's a couple of ways, there's some, sh- there really is no shortcut in this game, but there are a few shorter paths than others, right? And I think that the sort of institutional or quasi-institutional capital route where you can go and just, you know, basically you're working for them and the fees, what you're getting is very slim. Like that's a route you could, you could go to kind of build up that, that track record. But to me, I think at all times you should be trying to build this high net worth investor base, this group of people, this community around you that, you know, likes what you're doing even if you are having to augment with sort of selling your soul to the institutional capital sources along the way. But so with, with that said, right, is that the danger is that if you syndicate too long, then you program your investor base to think that I want to pick and choose, right? And so there is sort of that you've got to be always sort of threatening that things might change, right? So that's kind of why I feel like there's an appropriate time which is a little different maybe for everybody where you start to demonstrate that, Hey, we're really hitting our stride here. And that's why I like that GP co-invest fund. Cause it's sort of that like initial shock to the system, but it's not like you really care if you raise a ton of money into that. It's more of almost like introducing it as like, here's where we're headed folks. So once again, the more that I, the more success that I find, you need to realize that your ability to pick and choose with us is going to diminish right? Like it's, this is the model that we're going. Cause if you do it forever, they're like, they'll never move over. They just won't switch. Like I'm not investing in your fund. No way. And then you get in this position where, but a fund does, like I said, once you hit a certain volume, it's, you want to have the ability just to go out and say, let's get some commitments. We call the money in, you know, but some guys never get there. Like, so it's just a matter of volume really. Like it's just how robust is your pipeline? 
ultimately. So you mentioned pipeline there too as well, but I also feel like the structure of the, the team and the, the operator's team, like having enough people focused on acquisitions and then implementing those value add plans, you know, severely affects their ability to, to do more deals. Like what's, what's kind of a typical setup for an operator's team? Like, are they, is it mm-hmm. like 15 or 20 people or is it, you know, the operator and his cousin? <laughs> yeah. It, it seems like it's closer to the latter, right? I mean, it, it, and I think that this is what, and, and I just think that this is what we're going to continue to see more of. I mean, I, and I hope that we at Verabest help proliferate this because I feel like the, the more that we lower the, bar, the barrier to entry to kind of form your own real estate investment firm, then you really can get like, who's in charge of acquisitions, who's in charge of, you know, asset management or the value add plan, you know, construction and wh- whatever it takes, depending on your strategy, you've got an analyst, right? So, you, you know, I think, I mean, that's the one that a lot of people overlook. I mean, to me, it's trying to find that great analyst as soon as possible, right? And having a superstar analyst on your team, obviously it's, it's the key to having, for the acquisitions guy who's out there kicking dirt and shaking hands and meeting people and negotiating to have an awesome analyst and then the asset management piece. And then I think ultimately you're going to have to have someone who's more of that, you know, investor relations, you know, who's, who's sort of nurturing the relationships with the investors. So, I mean, if you did it right, you could have a team as small as, small as sort of six, four key sort of, you know, people who've got a lot of horsepower leverage some of the, you know, VAs, like even at our team and we, we got, team in the Philippines and we each sort of have VAs and, you know, it's just like, this is the beauty of, of living in this day and age is that you don't even have to have an office. You don't have to have a lot of stuff. So I think that what we used to see with some of this stuff was these big shops of 25, 30, 50 people. I just think that that's going to just not going to see it as much anymore because you can get away with just having a, an A team sort of approach. Yeah. You mentioned this analyst position. And, you know, I feel like when you're starting out a syndication or a fund, you know, you're doing everything, I guess, when you're starting out as a, as an operator of a syndication, you're, you're pretty much doing everything, but can you dive in a little deeper on like what an analyst actually does and how, you know, kind of what they're underwriting and what you think is important for that role? Yeah, well, I, th- I think they've got to be just an Excel master, right? I think is the is the big thing, and then just have sort of, you know, a finance type background, and obviously understanding real estate. But I mean, because when you bring these deals in, if you're out there, like I say, you get into the deal flow, and you've got opportunity. You you basically got to go, okay, pull this in. All right, take the T12 from the deal. Let's plug that in, and let's start getting after it. I think what you run into is that a lot of the guys who are the frontline or acquisition guys. I mean, maybe they have some skills, but they're usually not good enough, right? Because I've got this client who's got, you know, like he's the one who really sort of showed me the, the light on this deal. But he's like, you know, his guys, his analysts, he's like, they'd have what he called deal foot because they sit at their desk for like hours and hour, 12 hours a day, like cranking through Excel and, they're in, and suddenly they start having issues with their lower body limbs because they, they weren't moving frequently enough, right? Like <laughs> called, it, called it deal foot, right? Because if, really, if they were really cranking on a deal that they were underwriting, you know, he would get this tingling sensation and sort of like can't feel his, his foot anymore. So 
I just think that that's sort of, when I say analyst, that's what I'm talking about is just somebody who can really tear through stuff and really get down to where you've got that pro forma that's, because that's what it really, I mean, that's what a great operator, I mean, that's what the expectation is. I mean, investors expect that that's what's happening. Now, it's not always happening, but that sensitivity analysis and I mean, that, 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 that should be done. I think everyone wishes they did it, but if you, if you don't have a good analyst at some point, you can only move through so many deals, right? Because you just, how do you get comfortable? I mean, I don't, I don't really know the answer to that, but now I've heard, and I always forget to, I always forget the name of it, but there's like services, like not Upwork, but there's like some, some service out online where you can like rent an analyst or something. So it's, um, <laughs> I don't know. It's a whole thing. Wow. Yeah. I mean, when you've got the acquisitions guy, like really pounding, or I guess pounding on doors and, and getting deals coming in, like more than you know, they can kind of underwrite themselves, that need for an analyst actually sounds, you know, pretty, pretty imperative. I know that when AJ and I are looking at our deals, we, we like huddle up, yeah. you know, at the conference table and we're just, you know, filling out the pro forma. What's, I guess what's nice for us is that we do deals in our market where we manage hundreds of units and, you know, we really know our rental comps and like when it, when it comes down to it, you know, we feel like we get, you know, a pretty spot on pro forma. So I guess we're lucky in that regard, but it does sound like if you're syndicating or doing deals nationally, you really need an extremely like strong underwriting process performed by somebody who really knows their stuff. Yeah, that's right. And that's what I think. It's just, that's why I always reference sort of the grow and scale part of it, because the beauty of it early is that you can, you know, you can handle that. But as you know, the more and more and more activity you get going, eventually then you're like, crap, it's, it's more than we can do. And I'm having, you know, it's just part of the maturation process of, of that kind of business. So it's, you know, and, and cause a lot of times what I hear people saying is that they think they need a CFO or they're saying, I think we need this. Cause they know that it's something's missing. They can't keep on top of it. They don't have whatever. And I'm like, I don't think you need a CFO. I, I, I think that what I hear you saying is that you need to stop trying to run the Excel model. That's actually what you need to do. Right. Like, cause Let's, you're not that great at it anyway. So, I mean, let's get real here. Like, I mean, once again, I was fund administrator number one. Like, I did the fund admin, like, to prove it out. I'm not even an accountant, right? So, but, dude, I can oh, only do that for, like, nine months, man. I'm like, I've got to find somebody to do that. You were getting accounting yeah. foot. I was getting accounting foot for sure. <laughs> Well, I think it's getting towards that time. We're going we're gonna to hop into the last four questions here. I'm going to start you off with the first one is, what's one piece of advice you would give your 25-year-old self? Yeah, don't take yourself so seriously. Like, chip on the shoulder, being young, you know, everyone's against me sort of thing. Like, like if I could go back in time, I'd be like, knock that shit off. Like, that's just, like, it's good to have, like, an edge, but just, like, don't do that. Like, it's just, just you're wasting brain cycles on needless things. Yeah. <laughs> I think we all had a little bit of that in ourselves. Yeah. You know, be confident. We, 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 I'm not, that's probably good advice even now. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we still might have a little bit of that. <laughs> yeah. 
I've got um, five kids now, guys, and I've done a lot of stuff. It's just now I've realized, like, man, let's take yourselves too seriously. And it's just, I always looked young and I started my own business when I was 20, right? Like, and, and so it just pissed me off that everyone, like, they thought that my employee was like the owner. And so I just had this, like, thing where I just couldn't get over. Like, it just, it drove me nuts. And no one respects me. No one takes me seriously. It's like, calm down. <laughs> I love that. All right. So what was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? My first one was, I don't know if you guys remember this, but you, you used to be able to go and sell like these greeting cards, like, like by mail thing. So like I did that, like when I was like 11 or 10, I used to go door to door and sell like the holiday cards out of this like magazine, like of my own volition. Like I don't, I still look back like, why did, why did I do that? Like that just seems weird, but that was my first entrepreneurial sort of in, in, endeavor. Yeah, I know that AJ sold Cutco knives. And yeah. yeah, yeah, you know, um, you know John, you know John Rulin. Have you heard I of do John not. No, he's like the all-time leading Cutco salesman. I don't know if he's all-time, but he's got to be up there. He's a buddy of mine. Yeah, cool. very cool. All right, how has your formal and informal training shaped your journey? Yeah, so mine's more informal. I didn't. I went to college and I forgot to go to class. I just partied like every day, and then I realized like wow, this is really expensive. I could do this without being enrolled in college. Um, so I'm basically one of those guys, like completely self-taught. Like I just, like my superpower ultimately is I just learn things ridiculously fast. So, you know, it's hard knock stuff, right? Just experience and just all the information's at our fingertips, right? So that's my training is just in the world is my oyster. I can learn whatever I want to learn. I don't need to wait for someone to teach a class on it. That's a great superpower. Yeah, it's pretty yeah, sweet. I like that I mean, I've got a lot of things that I'm really, really bad at. So like there's, it's like, that's how the world works. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what was your Moby Dick? The one opportunity, maybe real estate deal, the one that got away, the white whale. Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, my first big bright idea was when I was 20 and I told my employer that I'm going to go, here's, I had this idea. He said, you know, we're not doing that. I said, okay, this is my two weeks notice. I'm out of here. It was doing this IT work for small, medium-sized businesses remotely for a fixed fee. So I said, I'm going to do that, started it and it grew like gangbusters, right? But you know, the one that got away is that I didn't realize that if I could go back Right. I, I would have, you know, got the venture capital. I would have got, you know, I would have developed the software. I would have kind of run the playbook like we're running now. And it sort of got away. But this past year was a bit, I sold out to my partner. I brought a partner on that deal in 2007. And this year, sort of the vision I had sort of is now happening. Because I envision there's going to be this like massive roll up of companies like that. This is before people are throwing rocks at me saying it's a dumb idea. I'm like, no, I think it's going to be a great idea. In fact, I think this is going to be ubiquitous where you just don't have IT people. You just, these firms just take care of people. They do it remotely, right? Well, just this year, they're now, the private equity guys are rolling up as the star of the show, the firm I started, and that's happening. So it sort of felt like the white whale that got away, but this past year, and it's odd because it's like a long time ago that I sold out, but it, I had this feeling of, it was like this piece when I and my partner said, hey, I want to let you know we're doing this. Like, it's happening. We're going to be the platform that's going to get rolled up. It's like your vision has 
has come to fruition. And even though like I don't stand to make an extra red cent out of the deal, it just was like, it was awesome. My You're wife validated. was crazy. Yeah, I'm like that. It happened. I just was like, I, I knew it. I was, <laughs> I, was I was right. I was right. Right. Well, that is really oh, cool. That's awesome. Well, Lance, it's been super fun having you on the podcast. If our audience wants to get a hold of you, is there a certain place that they should go or contact you? Yeah. So I think the website's just therealestateriskreport.com. You can reach me on there and then, you know, go to veravest.com, hit me up, lance at veravest.com. But I'm, I'm pretty accessible. I'm on LinkedIn, posting all the time. and It'd be hard not to find me. So. <laughs> cool. Awesome. Well, again, thank you very much for coming on and sharing your knowledge about funds and syndications. It was, it was yeah, my pleasure guys. It's great meeting you and we'll need to, we'll need to hook up here well, since we're in the same town. So. Yeah. I'm super impressed with your knowledge. It's just, you've got so much experience. I think it's really, this is going to be a great episode. So cool. Thanks. Carl. Cool. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the real estate professionals investing podcast on Win, your community for investing knowledge for growth. Please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone you know wants to be on, please go to westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form.